listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Today's scripture reading is from Micah chapter 3. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who led my people astray, who cry, Peace, when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirits of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Do we have any uh, youngest siblings here? Youngest siblings? Uh, Older brothers and sisters? Uh, Do we have any oldest siblings? Uh, I already know who you guys are because you were sitting up straight, looking responsible, nudging the younger ones to raise their hands. Uh, And I can probably tell who the only children are because you guys are looking around like, wait, when's it my turn? I'm supposed to be noticed. And the middle children, we're not even going to ask for because they're used to being overlooked anyway, right? So, Uh, Growing up, I was the youngest of three boys. Uh, In fact, I still am. Uh, That meant... Uh, I was the one being told things by my older brothers, Uh, like, you know, dad put me in charge, so that means you have to fold the laundry. Or I'm bigger, so I get a bigger piece of cake. Or if you tell mom what I just did, you're going to get it later. Uh, But I knew how to play the game too. Uh, I could stir up trouble, cause problems with my brothers, get them mad at me, and then go to mom Uh, because I was the baby and look all sweet and innocent and say, oh, mom, you don't think I would have broken Steve's model airplane, do you? We all knew how to jockey for position, how to try to get what we wanted in context of each other and how to shade the truth to make ourselves look good. And I don't think it was just my family. That happens in families. It happens in marriages. It happens in society. It happens in culture. It happens in church. Now, we don't often think of ourselves this way, but we are all motivated to seek power, to seek authority, based on what we believe is true. 
Now, that's not inherently bad. I mean, we are created in God's image, which means we have been created to exercise authority, to exercise dominion in creation according to God's truth, according to his design. But now, of course, sin has entered the picture and and entered into us, and so that project has gone badly off the rails. So now power often becomes self-serving. We exercise authority to advantage ourselves against other people, and then we bend the truth to justify what we've done or what we want. A bigger piece of cake, money, success, peace, security, recognition, often at a cost to other people. And that's the situation in Micah chapter 3 that Pastor Joey read for us this morning. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles Uh, Open that up on your phone, whatever app you use to access God's Word. The situation uh, in Micah chapter 3 is there's an unholy alliance of injustice and self-serving lies. That is, power and truth have simply become tools for people to get what they want. The leaders are perverting justice and they're supported by false prophets by the religious establishment. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're made to seek power, but the big idea from Micah chapter 3 today is this, that powerful people serve something bigger than themselves. Real power, God's kind of power, is about serving something bigger than my agenda or trying to align reality with what I believe to be true. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of this fact as we look through this passage this morning. Micah is not speaking to some pagan nation like Assyria or Babylon. He's writing to God's people. They had the word of God. They were living in the city of God. They experienced worship of God. And they were supposed to be a a beacon, a light to the nations around them. They were supposed to, as we've said in this series, reflect what God intends for us, to reflect his justice, his mercy, his goodness, his glory as we walk humbly with him. But by the time Micah is writing this, God's people have gone a long ways from where they ought to be. And God's people can do that. That's not just a a story or a warning for, you know, those people long ago in the Old Testament. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul's letters to the Corinthians or or to the church in Galatia or Jesus' letters to the churches in Asia Minor in Revelation. The New Testament tells us all these things were written down for our instruction as warnings and examples for us. So let's dig into this passage then. In verse 1, Micah is addressing the leaders of God's people, those who are responsible to shepherd, to guide, to protect, to order society, to reflect God's justice and goodness. Hear, you heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is, yes, of course it is, but that's not what's happening. And Then in verses 2 and 3 that we really just sort of skipped over because it's filled with this shocking, brutal, graphic 
imagery, some of the harshest language in the Bible to describe what God's people are like and what they are doing. It is savage language because these people have become savage towards one another, biting and devouring, heartless and cruel. And God says they're doing it to my people, my people. It's supposed to alert us, to alert these leaders to the horrors of what they are doing, to the horrors that God feels about this situation, even if they don't. Why? Why have they abandoned justice? Uh, and, and down in verse 9 and 10, they detest justice, making crooked all that is straight, building Zion with blood. Why? How can they impoverish people and enrich themselves and the answer is in verse 2, because they hate the good and love the evil. What is it like when you hate something? It makes you gnash your teeth, right? Your blood boils. It gets under your skin. You can't stand it. You, you, just, you can't even tolerate the fact that it exists. And you have no peace over it. And God says to these leaders, when, when God tells you what he is like and what he wants, that's what you hate. That's what makes you angry. When God corrects you with his word, that's what outrages you because you hate it and you love evil. You delight in taking advantage of one another, of crushing people. It sounds so extreme, right? Like, like some one-dimensional black hat villain from, from an old western or something, you know, twirling a mustache and, you know, chortling while he rubs his hands together. But these are real people. It's a warning for God's own people. And they do it, I think we get implicitly, because they have compartmentalized God. They have put him in a box. And I think we get that from verse 4, because as Micah goes on, he says that they, these leaders, will cry out to the Lord. You see that again, they're in small capitals, which is Yahweh the creator and ruler of heaven and earth, their covenant Lord is in a little compartment of their lives because he's not having an impact in how they're actually treating one another. So apparently they're still going to worship in the temple and God's allowed to tell them what they do on Sunday or Saturday worship. But the rest of my life belongs to me and God, I'm not going to let you talk to me about economics or profit and loss, or injustice in society, or how I treat people who are different from me, or my sexual behavior, or, or anything. You stay over there, small g God, and I'm going to go over here and live the way I want. It's, it's not what you tell me is not going to get lived out in my life. What does that look like? Some of you may remember in the 1990s, and a number of women came forward with serious allegations uh, about then-candidate Bill Clinton, who was running for president, uh, that he had harassed them in very inappropriate ways, that he had assaulted them, taken advantage of them. And many liberal women's groups supported the president, and so they defamed these women, dismissed their claims. They were willing to sacrifice women that they claimed to care about so as not to criticize a politician whose support they wanted. 
When President Clinton was later forced to admit to having had an affair with an intern, many conservative groups argued that that disqualified him from office, especially because he lied about it under oath. He couldn't be trusted. But many of those same conservatives dismissed serious allegations of misconduct, harassment, and assault by candidate Donald Trump when he was running for president. They were willing to sacrifice women that we claim to care about so that we wouldn't criticize a politician whose support we wanted. You know, throughout American history, Christians have either been actively engaged in or silently approving of all kinds of injustices. And we rightly look back at things like slavery and Jim Crow and lynching and poll taxes and laws against interracial marriage and race-restrictive housing covenants and say that those are wrong. Those are obviously unjust. But a lot of Christians at the time didn't see it that way. They didn't think they were unjust. They thought that those things were fine. That was just the way the world works. They didn't see it as an abuse of power. I mean, has there ever been a period in Christian history where we could look back and say, boy, you know, those Christians had it all right. They, they had it all figured out, and there's, there's nothing in what they did that we would critique or question. I mean, no. And if that's been our history as the church, isn't it possible, even likely, that there are things that we're missing the mark on in our culture, in our world, in our society? that God cares about. See, real power is not about getting it for ourselves. Real power comes from seeking God's justice. Real power is about seeking God's justice for others. I think we get that in verse 4 because Micah is saying these leaders who have been promoting injustice will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them because their deeds are evil. So in other words, they have ignored the people's cries for deliverance and justice. And so God says, then I'm not going to listen to you when you cry out because of my judgment that's coming. Because there has to be a, a deeper work in our hearts. These, these people would cry out for God to save their skin but not to heal their sin. And, and there has to be a brokenness, there has to be a repentance, there has to be a humility and awareness of how they have made their deeds evil because they don't care about what God says justice looks like. Because they have diminished God and said, you're only allowed to talk about these things in my life and not challenge me in this area. I have to ask have you done that? I have to ask myself, have I done that? Where have I got the Lord, where have I got Yahweh in a corner of my life compartmentalized where he's safe and tame and manageable so that I can keep him out of the areas where I don't want him to challenge me? How did these leaders get this way? I mean, I, I can't imagine that they just, you know, they, they sort of decided, boy, I, this is my goal for my life. I, I think it happens little by little over time, and part of the answer is in verse 5 and on. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. 
they're representing God to the people. They're proclaiming God's word simply in order to get paid. They care more about their stomachs than they do about what God actually says. And therefore, he says, it, it will be night to you without vision, darkness without divination. The sun will go down on you. The seers will be disgraced. The diviners put to shame. They will cover their lips for there is no answer from God. They've made the word of God a product. They shape it to whatever people want for money, for recognition, for power, for access, for security, for comfort, for ego. And so the ministry of the word of God that's supposed to be powerful and transformative in society to lead people in paths of righteousness, to reflect what God is like, has become instead a, a cheap sideshow at the county fair. Drop your coin in the slot and I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. And God's name is dragged into it. Now, you know, we can think of obvious examples like maybe televangelists or prosperity preachers. Send in your checks and get your blessings. I'll tell you what you want to hear. But it's not just televangelists because deep down I think we could maybe all acknowledge we all like the promise of prosperity more than is healthy for us, more than we like to admit. Christianity arose as a prophetic minority in, in a pagan empire. But for the last thousand years or more in Europe and at least 400 years on this continent, America, Christians have, have had cultural power. And that's frankly a mixed blessing. It's not all bad, but it's not all good either. For, for one thing, because we are part of the cultural majority, it's hard for us to step outside of the culture and look at it objectively to critique it because we've had a large part in shaping it. It looks the way it does because of the impact of Christians. And, and then that means at the same time, we live with a culture, with, with a pressure to conform to the culture, to conform to society, to support the goals and the values, as Micah says, of whoever will feed us and applaud us and keep us safe. The temptation is to say what people want to hear, to go along, to, to be accepted. One commentator put it this way, there, there's a great difference between biblical Christianity and Christianity that's merely a brand of conservatism or progressivism. One is rooted in the Bible and controlled by gospel imperatives. The other seeks ideological ends and uses the Bible as source material. Is your Christian faith distinguishable from cultural conservatism or cultural progressivism? Faithfulness to the truth begins with an honest assessment of how well we're living out the gospel mission among our neighbors and maybe what we're known for. Because, for example, if, if we claim to be people of truth, but we're really known for buying whatever conspiracy theory comes along or, or whatever easily debunked story crops up in the news or in social media and, and we pass it along, even though it can be easily disproved by 30 seconds of Googling, do we really care about the truth? 
when we become known more for political hashtags and conspiracy theories and, and parties and platforms and people that we support than for the gospel that God has us here to proclaim, we've let some other identity shape us. It's a problem because we're supposed to be people of the truth with the message of ultimate truth, of historical rooted reality. But if people see us spouting all kinds of lies and, and foolishness and easily disproved nonsense, how are they going to believe us when we come to talk to them about sin and salvation and heaven and hell and eternity? God is saying to these prophets, because you don't love the truth enough to let it confront your cultural idols, your desire for being inside the system, being accepted and being liked, you will have no powerful truth to speak. It will be silence. It will be darkness, God says. Is that possibly true of us? That, that maybe we've lost some moral authority to proclaim truth because we only speak the truth that affirms what we want to hear or gains us access to power. You see, real power comes from being willing to speak and sit under God's truth. Real power comes from sitting under God's truth because remember, powerful people ultimately serve something bigger than themselves. Am I taking God's word to serve me or am I sitting under it to speak it even when it may cost me something? Look at Micah by contrast in verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and with might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah has listened to God, he has yielded to God, and therefore he has authority from God to declare God's words and to confront the nation's problems. He has the courage to stand out from the crowd because he's empowered by God's justice, by God's might, by God's spirit, shaped by God's truth. Not so these religious leaders. The leaders give judgment for a bribe, the priests teach for a price, the prophets practice divination for money, and yet they lean on the Lord and say, isn't the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster will overcome us. These leaders have filled the nation with injustice and greed and violence, and the prophets of God have covered it all over with nice-sounding platitudes and promises that God loves them and nothing bad will ever happen to them. And what is supposed to be the word of God to transform people has become prostituted in service of self-interest or political goals or economic advancement. What else is God going to do but tear that down? Therefore, because of you, verse 12, Zion will be plowed as a field and Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, the mountain of the Lord's house, a, a wooded height. Sounds a lot like what Jesus is warning about in Revelation 2 and 3 in the letters to the churches in Asia Minor. I will take away your lampstand, repent and come back before disaster comes. God is going to plow up his own land, tear down his own temple, his own holy mountain. Why? 
so that he can bring together a people who will be for his glory and reflect his justice and his mercy. And he will tear down the injustice and the lies in order to rebuild. As we get into chapters 4 and 5 next week, and especially the beginning of chapter 4 next Sunday, there's this wonderful picture of hope and God's promise that the mountain that he's going to tear down will be established as the highest. It, it will be lifted up, and the Messiah of God will rule with justice and truth. Hope and deliverance don't mean an avoidance of suffering now. We're still responsible for what we do and, and how we live, and, and when we slip away from the Word of God, when we filter out what we don't want to hear and we get angry at God telling us things that we don't like, we're sliding down a dangerous slope that Micah is warning us about. It's a powerful warning. It's a sobering warning. Thankfully, it also points to what we've celebrated this morning in the Lord's Supper. At the table of the Lord is where we see the proof that God has done what he said he would do to build up his mountain, to raise up a Messiah, to rule in righteousness and truth and justice and glory and goodness. That's Jesus. Powerful people serve something bigger than themselves. When we say that Jesus came to become sin for us, do we understand from Micah 3 that the horror of what that is? the enormity of what he bore, that the one who is the perfect king, the perfect high priest, the faithful prophet of God, he bore in his body all of this, all of our evil and disobedience from Micah 3. The one who loved the good and hated the evil bore in himself our innate hatred of the good and love of evil. He who gave himself for others bore in his body our sin of devouring others. He who followed perfectly, obediently, all that the Father commanded, bore in himself our sin of going astray and leading others astray. He who spoke the truth of God, no matter how it would be received, no matter how people would respond to him, bore in his body our whittling down God's word, to something that we like and something that will not offend too many people. We have a Savior who bore all of the ugliness and the horror and the sin that Micah describes here so that we would not only be forgiven, but that we could be a people who would reflect God's justice and truth and mercy and glory as we walk humbly with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though we see in ourselves the ease with which we can look like these people in Micah's day, we thank you that we have a Savior who has borne all that sin. We confess that we have hated good and loved evil or not loved good enough and not hated evil enough. We confess, Lord, that we have uttered spiritual-sounding words falsely, our hearts nowhere near what we say, our conduct a denial of what we profess. 
Oh God, give us the grace to make us truly sorry, to humbly repent before you. We confess, Lord, how we have viewed others as a source often merely of what we want and have not loved them as you love them. And we repent. We pray that the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, will and does cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us to take seriously the warnings of Micah 3, to live in the power and the might that you pour out on your people who seek justice and follow your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.